Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Helen Jefferson-Lensky. And Helen, it's really wonderful to see you. I've been an avid reader of your work for, I think, 36 years. Oh, goodness. <laughs> counting it down. Yeah, and wow. Whenever your name is on something, it means I have to read it be it oh. an edited collection, a monograph that you've produced, uh, an article, a chapter in somebody else's book, whatever it might be. So it's a great privilege to be chatting to you today. I really, really oh. value well, that. I, I appreciate the chance to talk to you and to meet you via Zoom because I'm, I've known your work for decades as well. And I think particularly when you were editing uh, Sociology of Sport Journal, and I'm not sure of the era of that, but um, I know that was important uh, for me. And a lot of your other work really touches on the work I do. So I think we're very compatible. <laughs> Thank you, Helen. So, Prof. Helen, my starting question, my usual one, really, it's rather, one could call it banal, but for me, it's very important, which is to ask what's dynamizing, interesting, worrying, preoccupying you these days? Okay. Um, well, dynamizing, um, I just this week uh, sent Emerald's commissioning editor the proposal for my next book, just when mm. I thought, I, I really thought I wasn't going to do another book, and I, I actually said that 23 years ago, so that's... Um, <laughs> And a friend in Australia said, oh, you've got another book in you. And that was just after the first Olympic industry critique. So, yeah, yeah. she was right. I had a few more books in me. And this one, um, The Quest for Justice in Sport. And so it's going mm -hmm. to be very far-reaching, I hope, um, trying to touch on all the issues and also trying to take an intersectional approach to these issues Um uh, for decades, I've been critical of white liberal feminism and uh, or any kind of liberal initiative. So I'm sort of uh, continuing in that vein and also making sure that I take uh, ethnicity and race and all the gender sexualities, sex issues into account, uh, socioeconomic status, uh, global north versus global south and disability, ability slash disability. Mm, mm. Well, it's, a, it's a big picture, um, and I'm not sure how it'll turn out yet. Uh, that's the surprise ahead of me. <laughs> Absolutely. And I wanted to pick, pick up on this question of the, the critique of white liberal middle-class feminism that you mentioned, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. gets a, a lot of criticism these days. And for understandable reasons, is there anything recuperable or valuable there? I guess I, I don't want to sound disrespectful to the founding mothers of uh, sport feminism uh, who tended to look at the world through a fairly narrow lens uh, mm -hmm. because they were white, middle class and liberal. And uh, I remember a colleague of mine whose work um, has influenced mine, Anne Hall, Canadian colleague, um, mm used to explain what radical meant, and it meant getting to the root. Um, it, it has other connotations, but that was important for me that, um, 
reform that is recommended by liberal people does not get to the root. Uh, radical transformation gets to the root, gets to the problem with the systems of oppression. And so in the beginning when uh, it was sort of add women and stir, and then people were quite rightly critical of that approach, but add women and stir to sport meant that sport remained unchanged and heaven knows uh, that is not a good situation. And I just, um, not in the proposal, but I've started writing. So I had a section, um, I, I do have a section on my personal journey from um, writing about sport in the 80s and continuing writing critique of the Olympic industry in the mm. 90s and 2000s. Um, and really, um, I'm an outsider because the position amongst probably 90% of sports scholars is I love sport, but, and I don't say that. I, I was the most unathletic kid girl in my girl's school. In my, <laughs> in my years. Um, always picked last, you know, that feeling, and uh, didn't do anything except um, just swimming so that I could meet friends at the beach in Sydney. I grew up in Sydney, Australia. That was pretty much all I did by way of physical recreation. And um, sort of fast forward to discovering jogging and buying a bicycle and then in a sort of parallel moves um, in 1980, switching my research topic after my master's. When I started my PhD, I decided to switch to physical recreation physical education and sport in the same historical period, which was 1890 to 1930. And before mm. that, I'd been looking at immigrant girls' education, 1890 to 1930. So I kept in Canada. So I kept the same context and switched to phys ed and sport. And the rest is sort of history because you know, my supervisor said, um, I'd love Mary O'Brien uh, said, uh, I'd, I'd love to see you. I was in the sociology department at my university, but I was doing historical sociology. And she said, I'd, I'd love you to do an analysis of contemporary sport. And that sort of sparked my interest instead of sticking to the historical, sticking to the historical period. Um, I just branched out and then went from there. Because some of your early publications in the early 80s are not just about sports. They're, they are focused on education uh more generally i guess in terms of perhaps that master's project or whatever or your interests yeah yeah that's early right. publications. Yeah. and then you move into sport but you've widened as well as deepened your view over time at least from my perspective in terms of this series of books about the olympics and often with <laughs> gender as a theme or always with gender as one theme but increasingly the environment being an important topic as well. And I wanted to ask you, and you've also written some very moving autobiographical work, including one of your books. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the relevance of having a life that is has been shaped in part by growing up in Australia, in Sydney, and in part by being a young adult and scholar in Canada and how significant those places have been for your understanding of some of these topics, environmental issues, gender issues, race, sexuality, et cetera. 
Yeah. Um, well, I often, when I go back home to Sydney, um, sometimes friends ask me, do you wish you'd stayed here? And I'm very ambivalent about that because, you know, my heart is there, but I think my my intellectual life, my academic life would have absolutely withered and died in an Australian university in the era when I was there um, or when I would have been a grad student yeah. and a young lecturer, assistant professor in the 80s and 90s um, because it was such a rigid system, there was such a, a lack of freedom. And what I had, which was a, a great privilege, was to teach in a graduate school of education in at University of Toronto, um, with one notable exception, I never taught undergrads. Um, I had so much. I had the luxury of time. Um, I could choose which courses I taught. I could develop new courses, um, which I did. They were on education, um, sport and physical education, women's health, um, community development, a whole range of mm-hmm. courses mm-hmm. developed and taught. Um, Australian universities in that era would not have been a fertile ground for any of the sorts of things that I ended up doing. So that was crucial. And by the time I graduated, I wasn't really a young, I was a young scholar in terms of years of experience, but um, I defended my PhD a few days before I turned 40. Um, and another benchmark in my personal journey was on, on my 50th birthday, which is just over 30 years ago. Um, I decided I was going to go back to swimming, which was a great source of joy in my childhood and teenage years. Um, not just for the water, but for the company. Um, mm. and, uh, so I started swimming seriously at age 50 and actually someone in the pool today. Um, said something really complimentary about how she saw me swimming up and down and thought that lady knows how to swim. And I had a, before that, I told her I was 80 because it came up in the conversation. So right. Uh, right. it's not nice to get that sort of feedback, even though I, yes, you know, I think, what am I, I can't see myself swim. I'm not sure what I look like. I, I know that some parts of my form are good and some parts aren't so good, but, um, I do it four times a week for half an hour each time and so it's a crucial part of my life and that might not have happened if I hadn't grown up near the water in Sydney and been able to just hop on a bus go for a swim meet friends um every day if I wanted to was that that near the beach that you grew up Helen yeah um in the eastern suburbs of Sydney so there were pools in Sydney harbour with shark proof nets and there were surfing beaches um on the other side so Mostly, I swam in the in the netted areas in the and, harbour and those tidal pools. I guess my father was Australian and he grew up at uh, Bondi Beach. Oh well, yeah. Well, um, Nielsen Park, which is sort of yes, 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 just pretty much Bondi, and you go drive for about ten minutes and you would be at Nielsen Park. Yeah, yeah, yeah. lovely. Yeah, I I was and, growing up, grew up near the. Um, Near South Head Lighthouse, South Head Cemetery. There. Oh, yes. Oh, wonderful. Mm-hmm. Very nice area. And one of your books called A Lot to Learn traces in part some of your own story mm-hmm. when it comes to education, life, identity, and so on. I wondered if you could 
tell us a little bit about combining this the personal, the autobiographical, with the more sociological and historical, and how easy or difficult that's been for you? Yeah, the the first part of A Lot to Learn was my mother's very brief biography based on her handwritten notes about her history, um, like her life story, which she wrote when she was older, um, which had some horrendous sides to it, which I couldn't type without crying almost because her grandmother was so physically abusive to her and probably verbally abusive as well. Um, Her grandmother raised her because her mother had so many kids and an absent alcoholic husband and that sort of scenario. So um, that was difficult to write about. Um, I enjoyed writing about my own growing up um, and the um, you know, contradictions, uh, growing, uh, being sent to a private girls' school um, in part because of my mother's health and the fact that it was convenient and um, I could get there on a bus or in those days a tram. And uh, I was, my father was a builder and my mother worked in a factory before she got married and I grew up with very working class values working class um basically language or Australian dialect um so I was a bit of an outsider in school Mm. because there were things I just and my mother was in her 40s late 40s when I was born so I had elderly parents um elderly working class parents and I wasn't athletic. I was good at academic work at school, so that sort of saved me from being totally miserable. And I had friends, and that was important to me too. But, um, yeah, the the childhood certainly shaped who I am today, and uh, get, having a private school education is a luxury, and I was very privileged to have that. Um, you know, who, who knew that at age 80, um, I would recall all the rules of grammar from doing English and from doing Latin and, you know, pr- proofreading stuff online and something jumps out. And I think, well, you know, these these young people never learnt that. So, of course, they don't know it's apostrophe S and it's ITS and so on and so forth. <laughs> um, every yeah, every so- morning, and uh, sorry, Anne, every, I was thinking of Anne Hall for a second there, my apologies. <laughs> Dollar earlier. Every morning, Helen, when I look at the BBC website for the news, I am infuriated by grammatical and syntactical errors, errors as I would call them. So, and and I think your your mom's story in that condensed version that you share with us is a great example of a personal historical sociology, as I would see it, because you have that sociologist's eye, I think. Yes, yeah, that's true. And I did put it in context by you know, citing secondary sources on the education system in that era and um, and the same for my era, which was the 1950s at, at the private school. Um, and then in the book I jumped pretty much to having finished my PhD and teaching at University of Toronto and mm. teaching in a faculty a, Faculty of Education, Graduate School of Education, mm-hmm. and starting um, while I was finishing up, well, what was the sequence? I started undergrad because I only had a teaching certificate from Australia. Uh-huh. I started 
an undergrad at U of T in 1972 and then a master's and then a PhD. And I did most of it part-time because I was some of the time, well, yeah, most of the time I was working part-time in a daycare centre um, three days a week or three, five half days or four half days, various combinations. Um, and in the midst of that, I left my husband and then I started on the PhD program and finished that in under three years, two and a half years, something like that. So I was quite pleased with my progress on that. Mm. Um, and then started teaching. Oh, and by that time I had two children in elementary school. And when they started school, almost the same time I started undergrad, um, I put my hand up. I must admit, with a lot of prompting from my ex-husband, um, to serve on the school community council. And that was really another life-changing event because I hadn't done anything sort of as a card-carrying activist. And here I was, a member of a parent-teacher association, which was actually called Franklin Community Council. It was a new model, not just the old parent-teacher, you know, the parents pouring tea, afternoon tea for fundraising events or something like that. We were doing sit-ins at the Board of Education meetings to ask for more teaching assistance or later on for a um, a second language program for the Greek children and the Chinese children and just a lot of political interventions um, that touched on children in all the schools in the Toronto Board of Education so that was an eye opener as well, and and that my first sort of getting involved in in any activist groups, um, and then sort of that that continued in the eighties, and then I guess the next one was the another a, a groundbreaking change for me, and that was uh, joining Breadnut Circuses, which. Um, a friend had sort of introduced me to the concept of an Olympic critique. Before that, I had taken a mostly kind of liberal perspective. And then she said, well, here's what's wrong with the Olympics. And she was a former Olympic athlete. Um, and I'd met her through a, a women's sport advocacy group. Oh, that was what I was active in from from uh, about 1980 on the Canadian Association for the Advancement of Women in Sport, which is now called Women's Sport Canada, I think. Um, I was very active in that. And then my friend Jan introduced me to Bread Not Circuses just fortuitously as the shit hit the fan with the bribery scandals in 1999. And did I have a book just sitting there waiting to be written? <laughs> so that was... Um, you know, and I documented participant observation, my involvement with Bread Not Circuses, our clashes with IOC members, um, our clashes with all the people at the university who are rah, 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 Olympics because some of them are former Olympians and that's very hard to challenge because, you know, Olympians sort of walk on water apparently. So, <laughs> <laughs> or is, yeah, so um, that that sort of shaped the direction of what I did from 2000, from 1999 on. So there were, there's been all those Olympic books that you mentioned. And because um, I started off with Brennan Sixers in Toronto, 
and they had already established connections with anti-Olympic and Olympic watchdog groups in other cities around the world. Um, I did, I joined activist groups. They invited me to Vancouver um, a couple of times, maybe three times to, you know, do the activist thing, do do press conferences and uh, talk mm-hmm. to people, visit uh, relevant neighbourhoods and see what was happening and so on. And then because after I got a full-time job at the University of Toronto, I had the privilege of enough money to be able to go to Australia every year and I desperately wanted to go because my mother by then was um, oh, approaching 90 and wait a minute, yeah, in in 1990 she was 92 and that was, I went back in 1984 and then there was this sort of hiatus and I really wanted to keep going back but life intervened sort of thing but then full-time job in 1990 went back every year sometimes twice a year and she died in 1997 aged 99 and a half so um I got to see a lot of her in the last little while last years of her life uh, which was sad as well as you know something I loved doing but it was sad to watch a 99 and a half year old you know, not everybody, like I just saw a story about a 100-year-old woman in Australia who swam faster than I swim, 400 metres in 11 minutes or something, <laughs> something truly amazing. But my mother was, you know, in bed. Um, she was herself. She was mentally very smart, mm. sharp, but... Um, Anyway, so I had these visits back every year and I made new connections with anti-Olympic groups, Olympic watchdog groups in Sydney, spoke to their people and um, gave papers at conferences in Australia and Vancouver and so on. So um, that all sort of gelled with the the Olympic connection of, of then the Vancouver and the Sydney connection. And you, and you made, sorry, go I ahead. Yeah, I made some good friends in the process, which is important to me because I made some enemies in Toronto and friends who weren't were friends before became basically enemies and not in a sometimes in a very personal way, which was hurtful, sometimes merely professional disagreements about the importance of the Olympics. But nevertheless, um it, I sort of see it as a, a compensation for being an activist and I see myself as an activist first before an academic. And I know that, you know, I could send an email to these people, contacts in Vancouver and Sydney and say, you know, I'm coming, do you want to have coffee sort of thing and uh, know that I'd get a, a very positive reception, whereas mm-hmm. I couldn't do that with former friends in Toronto. So that's the price. That's uh, Obviously, naming names is not necessary here, but to give an example of the kind of person that shifted from friend to enemy. Um, um, yeah, maybe enemies to the word. Um, just the collegial stuff, um, yes. like at a conference, just ignoring me, um, at a social event, ignoring me. And probably more significant, and I don't go around counting this or checking this because life's too short, but I can say based on 
my impressions based on what I see when I scan the reference list for articles about the Olympics. If they're critical articles, they'll cite me. If there's some sort of middle-class white liberal shit, no way will they cite Lenski. Lenski just does not appear. Yeah. And that makes me pissed off. But that's, um, you know, their choice and they get published because the gatekeepers take the same view. Indeed. And so many people, as you said, involved in writing about the history and sociology and anthropology of sports were jocks or jockettes, <laughs> to use old-fashioned yeah. language. And so yeah. their identity is very mixed up in this, right, and in valorizing these institutions. Now, having said that, as you indicated, there are many people who were Olympians or were pro players who are not like that, who are actually very exactly. critical. Exactly. But, and but, but there's a hegemony in a kind of functionalist uh, way, you know, people who still believe in functionalist sociology, for example, and that are celebrants and, and nothing else. Yeah. Very oh, yeah. important in, in human movement studies, schools still uh, around the globe and probably always yeah. will be. Yeah. So this thing about everyone loves sport if they're in a kinesiology department and I I wasn't, I was cross-appointed, but sort of hypothetically here I am, you know, yeah. in a kinesiology department. All I do is swim slowly and boringly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I don't do team sports, never have, well, with a brief ex- exception, did team sports. Um, and, and that was as an adult, just in a recreational softball league. Um, so I don't fit in on that front. I'm not going to show up Monday morning and during the coffee break and talk about the hockey scores because I don't know the hockey scores. I don't follow hockey. <laughs> this is ice hockey for the audience. Yes, who is Right, there. right. And getting back to the Olympics, so you wrote about the 2000 Summer Olympics in Sydney. Yeah. Which were not widely seen in North America because they were on at the wrong time. Uh, and yeah. the NBC has forever insisted that <laughs> from that point on, Summer Olympics be held at the right time of the year and at the right yeah, time of day yeah, for its yeah. audience because NBC gets what NBC pays for. But in terms of Australian fantasies about sport and the nation, what sort of role do you think the Olympics in 2000 played? Oh, huge. Um, you know, we love sport and we're on the world stage showing how what a great Olympics we can host. Um, and we'll up our medal count because it's on home ground and, and Australians did. So, um, and Kathy Freeman carried a huge weight because, or the the media coverage of Kathy Freeman had her carrying a huge weight because mm. this was meant to be evidence that there was no discrimination against Australian Aboriginals, that if she could do it, everybody could do it and so on, despite the fact she, she ran a lap with the Aboriginal flag, uh, which was not quite to form, but uh, she did. Not part of the script, Helen. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and... Meanwhile, I 
my research before the Olympics started included a lot of focus on Aboriginal Australians and reconciliation and mm -hmm. uh, the, well, so many things that like exploiting cultural symbols to look good uh, from the very beginning, the, um, the logos on the bid committee literature, um, promotional stuff, um, had a sort of image of a dot painting from desert Aboriginals. Um, just that, that's just one of many, many examples. And, uh, getting a lot of mileage out of Kathy Freeman, um, getting, having Aboriginal content in the opening and closing ceremonies, which, uh, could be celebratory, but could be exploitative as well. And on balance, I would say it was more exploiting than celebrating. Um, and that's classic. Um, Vancouver Winter Olympics exploited Canadian Indigenous people's culture and symbols and so on. Um, so it's it's a complicated story, but but certainly, you know, there there was that angle. Um and that the other side in terms of if you were living in Sydney and the Olympics were coming to town in was it August 2000, you got the hell out of there. There was a huge exodus of people who didn't want to be in the city when there were thousands and thousands of tourists. And also when that the security was so over the top um, that there was um there were these Olympic live sites like a jumbo screen where People who were not at the actual venue could watch the exciting, the high-profile events. And then the organisers and the police and so on drew a circle around each live site and said, and that when I looked at those circles on a map of Sydney, I could see that they blanketed most of the city and particularly the foreshores, north and south foreshores of Sydney Harbour um, and the eastern suburbs over to Bondi where the beach volleyball was and so on. Um, west to Homebush, where which is 16k, I think, from the downtown, uh, where the the big venues were, all these stadiums were. Um, so the the city's blanketed. The city's a sort of policed zone where you can't do anything. Mm. So my friends who wanted to distribute leaflets about Aboriginal injustices or about anything, um, the the um, arrests of homeless people, a whole slew of things that typically accompany an Olympics, um, they would have got arrested for handing out a piece of paper. So they didn't do that. They didn't want to get arrested. But the, the, that kind of thing that the world didn't see. And even, and I, I wrote about this later on, I'm not sure if it was in the Sydney 2000 book or a different place. Um, it was probably in there that... Um, I had two friends in colleagues in Toronto. Um, one, a South Asian woman who is a, you know, probably a internationally known anti-racist scholar, brilliant woman. And the other was, um, somebody who was a new graduate, um, who also sort of saw herself as somebody who understood race and racism. And they both separately said to me, after Kathy Freeman won and after they saw the opening closing ceremonies, um, they said, well, this is great. Um, this, 
demonstrates that Australia is doing well in terms of its treatment of Aboriginal people. Based on that facade, and I was quite incredulous that two super bright colleagues came up with that at the end of the day. (laughs) And despite anything that I had talked about when I'd done presentations at my university and so on. Right. And Kathy, it was the 400 metre track that she won. Is that right? 400 metres? Yeah. Yeah. Which was it? And she she lit the cauldron as well. So I think, you know, she had a high profile. She had a very high profile and winning was incredibly important and, yeah. So the Australian government held her up as some sort of symbol. And uh, 25 years later, gosh, things are still terrible for Indigenous Australians from what I can tell if you look at the data, although yeah. there is more of a middle class perhaps than there was at that time. But the, the exploitation of people symbolically remains immense as well as the depredation of their living circumstances. So. Yeah, well, just just last year, 2023, there was a plebiscital referendum, not sure which, um, whether or not to agree to what was called the Aboriginal voice in Parliament. And 65, 66% of Australians voted no. And that was absolutely devastating for one for Australian Aboriginals, obviously, at top of the list, and two for the white allies who um, you know, went door knocking, just busted a gut. But they, you know, it's the usual sort of David and Goliath that the David side is working on a shoestring to, with volunteers and the Goliath side, the no side, had the backing of the uh, coalition government, which was the Liberals and the Nationals in Australia, um, Labor was in favour of the voice to Parliament, but uh, and it wasn't going to change the constitution. It wasn't all the all the lies that were promoted about it um, probably were were what uh, damaged it the most. But the the sort of rhetoric from a typical racist Australian was. Um, they don't deserve special treatment, and it wasn't special treatment. It was a consultative kind of role. Mm-hmm. So that was tragic, really. And in terms of your work on the Olympics, when it comes to human rights violations of the kind you've just described with reference to activists, you also wrote very powerfully about the Sochi Winter Games in 2014 in Russia. Mm-hmm. And we've seen an intensification of anti-queer politics under the Putin regime since then. But that was one of the big things that you were concerned about with reference to that event, along with, of course, what emerged, uh, I think, perhaps a bit after around the same time as your Sydney 2000 work, namely environmental questions connected to the Olympics. I wondered if you could take us through the human rights questions associated with the Olympics, sexuality issues and others, and also the environmental ones. Yeah, I think the the biggest impact on human rights is the impact on homeless and underhoused populations in the host city because the organisers and the politicians want to, quote, clean up the city for the international visitors and for the international television cameras. 
and having homeless people lying around on sidewalks, which happens, uh, is not a good look. And so every city um, deprives those people of their basic human rights by either arresting them, as they did in Atlanta, infamously. Uh, that's very well documented. Um, in Sydney, they there were sort of less concerted efforts but amounted to the same thing of, of getting homeless people off the streets. Um, in one case, I think the, I saw a, a, a bus shelter where a woman had sort of taken up camp, so to speak, um, and they pulled down the bus shelter, so that solved that problem. So there's that there's a park near the railway and Sydney Railway that um, had a lot of homeless people, and that was cleaned up. And I think putting fences around these areas were how they they did that kind of thing to discourage homeless people from from sleeping there overnight. Um, so I see that as as one of the basic um, human rights infringements. And, yeah, um, sort of switching to environment, um, really the, this concept of greenwashing, of just um, a, a facade of, of uh, embracing sustainable principles of sustainable development, that's uh, becoming almost routine That ever since the IOC decided that environmentalism was the, the another pillar of the Olympic uh, so-called movement, then uh, they, you know, sort of have a, a, a good-looking uh, plan that has <laughs> recycled toilet paper or something. Not quite, but uh, so, um, yeah, it's um, it's often window dressing. Um, I attended some meetings and interviewed Greenpeace and Green Games Watch 2000. Uh, volunteers uh, when I was doing the research for the Sydney book, and there there were a few uh, pluses, a, a few gains. Um, the the organisers of the Sydney Olympics like to say that Greenpeace um, endorsed their environmental plan, but Greenpeace endorsed one little bit of it that they personally um, developed, not the whole thing. It was just one component, but that turned out in the you know the hype was that oh this is Greenpeace endorsed so um it's yeah it's complicated well there haven't really I don't think there's really been um um sort of a glowing success environmentally at any Olympics the they have to make an effort there are some things they're doing um where was it where they had cardboard beds in the um Athletes Village. It was a recent one, and uh, that oh, got a lot. That. <laughs> that got a lot of coverage because it was recycled cardboard or something, and then people worried that it wouldn't hold a great big strong athlete. <laughs> anyway, that you know, gimmicky things. Um, oh, disposable. Yeah, using recycled material for medals was a big thing in. Tokyo 2020, which was really 2021, but yes, yeah, yeah. I've yeah. always thought that, I, that that emblematized the crookedness of the Olympics. That even when the thing actually happens in one year, you pretend that it was the previous year because that's the cycle. Yes, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I wrote something about that. Uh, Did you? Oh, right. I probably got the yeah. idea from you. <laughs> <laughs> so what about sexuality issues too, Helen? Because Prof H, that's been a big thing in your work, gender and sexuality issues. And it's yeah. become a, a, a really crucial issue at the Olympics in term, and, and actually the World Cup of men's football too in recent mm. times and in pro- probable future times. The the issue of the welcome given or not given to LGBTQ uh, athletes, spectators, workers, and so on. Yeah, and that has a long history. Um, you know, the nineteen sixties sort of or seventies lesbian scare that um, you know someone like Navratilova and uh, within tennis there were. You know, the, the scare was about so-called predatory lesbians preying on young, innocent, straight teenagers and all that sort of thing. Um, yeah, it's it's been a, a long, long ongoing theme. Um, I think there's a bit more acceptance of, of lesbians and gay men in sport, but the, the current uh, vitriolic debates uh, are about trans people in sports, particularly trans women. And that's a huge, huge topic. Um, And my colleague, Ali Gray, and I just co-edited two books on first called Justice for Trans Athletes and the second one, Trans Athletes Resistance. And we had uh, trans contributors who, in the second book, um, told very moving stories about their own experiences. Um, And basic just one example from one sports governing body and that is um IAAF which is now called World Athletics that um I documented this extensively in the last two in um the Olympic Games 2020 book and in um gender athletes rights in the court of arbitration for sport in 2018 mm-hmm. um that the IAAF as it was then had basically a, a stable of tame scientists who came up with research that was published sometimes in the British Medical Sports Medicine Journal and elsewhere um, that didn't appear to have adequate peer review because there were gaping holes and flaws in their reasoning and in their data and so on. And my colleague Roger Pilkey from the US who uh, contributed a chapter to the first trans book, went through this so-called evidence that trans women had an advantage because of testosterone and so on. Mm-hmm. And he found gaping holes and flaws and called for a retraction. Um, and they actually issued a, some kind of corrections with a, for science a, a huge number of, of, math, of statistical errors or and calculation errors, that kind of thing. And to make a long story short, what I call this is um, evidence, research-based evidence rather than policy-based research instead of research-based policy. The IAAF wanted this to be the outcome and the team scientists said, yeah, well, we can fiddle this around and we'll get it to show that there's a 
testosterone advantage. Then they sort of modified it and said, well, some sports there isn't a testosterone advantage and some there is. And then at the end of the day, World Athletics named certain lengths of races that not coincidentally Caster Semenya, who's inadvertently started all of this going through intersex, uh, through having an identity which is erroneously called intersex, but anyway, um, more naturally occurring testosterone than the average female athlete to sort of condense what intersex means, but nothing to do with um, having any um, artificial performance-enhancing drugs. So the, the, the intersex and the transgender debates sort of converge that's why I'm putting them all together, but they are very different. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's the common denominator of testosterone levels and World Athletics used to say 10 nanomoles per litre or whatever the measure is, and then they lowered it to five, in other words, making it very difficult for the Castor Semenyas of the world to be eligible to compete in women's events. But Castor Semenyas fight has actually gone to the European Court of Justice and uh, she has made some headway in challenging world athletics, which is absolutely unprecedented because, as I documented in the book on the Court of Arbitration for Sport, that's where the buck stops, they hope, um, because the the next level to appeal is the Swiss um, Federal Tribunal, their high court, and they're not interested in content. They're only interested in procedural errors. But um, Castor Semenya managed to, as I said, uh, make more headway in the European Court of Justice. And other athletes might as well, like um, the the young Russian girl who's now 16, I think, uh, Valieva, Valieva. Um, whose whose case who was suspended um, for drugs um, doping? Yes, from the tw- last from the- couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's the case I'm thinking of, and I've got yeah. her last wrong, I think. But um, yeah. So, and that's just a whole other- <laughs> one of the things that's astounded me, Prof Helen, in the last few months is the number of sports that flip-flop over this issue of trance competitors that yeah, because produce the... you know, policies that they then decide are not right or you know, turn it in a different, different direction. It seems so. there's a lot of lobbying going on from different sides of the argument. World athletics is certainly one, but you know, bicycling and chess and cricket mm-hmm. – all sorts of yeah. sports seem to be in trouble swimming over this and yeah. unable to decide what to do. And frequently one does hear a voice of young women, uh, women as in cis women or people born yeah. in ways defined biologically as female, right, saying we want competition to be just for us, right, and that this is suddenly changing the rules of the game that counter everything we've trained for and expected. They're one of the voices, I think, that is heard, along with incredibly conservative, often male administrators. I think of Sebastian Coe, 
in the case yes. of athletics. Yeah. 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 And the news media often seem puzzled as to what to do. And anti-trans sentiment is extraordinary. I mean, Rishi Sunak, the British Prime Minister, oh. this week, yet again, yes. made horrendous comments about yeah. what's a woman, even as the mother of a recently murdered trans teen was in yeah. the House of Commons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As an honoured um, visitor. Yeah, apparently, and this might be mercifully, she was a little late in arriving. She didn't actually hear the his outburst, but everybody in the world heard it and um you know, she knows about it now and Brianna Gay's father knows about it and they're demanding an apology and Rishi Sunak during his statement saying he wasn't going to apologise was actually smiling because he has this kind of permanent smile and uh, that was another shocking aspect of it as if it couldn't get any worse that not only could he not bring himself to apologise graciously um but when he was saying that he would not, he was still still kind of smirking about the whole thing. Of course, of course. And the, the front bench were rolling on the floor laughing yesterday, which was disgusting as well. And the, the whole party is disgusting. Wow. So one of these books, the one I've got, is Justice for Trans Athletes. Mm -hmm. And... Um, it's a it's a terrific book, and the other one, trans athletes resistance. That's correct. Yeah, and obviously this justice issue, I think, has been really a theme of your work throughout. But it's it's going to form the core, the heart of this proposed volume that I'm sure yes. will yeah. Yeah. see the light of day, and that's exciting. I've got a couple more questions for you, Professor Helen, and then I'd like to throw it to you to add anything you'd like. So yeah. my first question is, in a sense, a boring methodological one, which is how do you find out all the things you find out? <laughs> um, I think the, the Sydney book is the best example of how I um, did participant observation and interviews, so yeah. absolutely qualitative research. And when people have said, well, you never talk to an IOC member or you never talk to an organising committee member, I say I'm relying on the material that is made public by the IOC and by the organising committee because the average person in the host city doesn't have access to the inner circle and um, I'm not going to do that either. I've never interviewed anybody who's been in that inner circle. I've always interviewed the, quote, outsiders who are... Mm -hmm activists. Um, so in Sydney, I had a, a lot of interviews um, with grassroots groups and with organised anti-Olympic groups, Olympic watchdog groups and so on, um, as well as being part of it. So that's how I found out everything for that book. Um, I must admit now, you know, I'm relying on the internet and searches and social media and I am a bit obsessive about Twitter. So I follow the accounts that are going to enlighten me about what's going on. Um, I don't follow any of the um, the people who are virulently anti-trans and who are 
hostile and cruel and nasty and vitriolic. Um, life's too short to read what they have to say. And in fact, some of them who are UK academics did what they laughingly called the review of our first book. And it was a hatchet job. It, it didn't, should never have been published in a professional, on a professional website, but it was. Um, so that, you know, is, is not simply out there. It's very, very close. <laughs> Um, but I, I get, you know, that I've got these sort of networks where I can, um, for example, um, Tom Tresser, who was the key force behind the stop, stopping Chicago's Olympic bid. Um, he and I connect quite frequently and I looked at, I, I looked at the draft of the book that he's just writing, um, about, that campaign, success of that campaign, because the Chicago bid was withdrawn, um, stopped in its tracks by the group and the allies, um, Tom's allies. So I just noticed that um, he's posted something about um, three people like himself, one from Boston. Um, where was the other? LA, the watchdog group in LA and Boston, where the bid was stopped as well, and Tom, who's, who, whose group stopped the Chicago bid. And they all presented at a leisure studies conference in New Orleans just this week. So because I'm on his mailing list, I got that information and I can look at the video of their presentations. And mm. if that's mm-hmm. relevant to what I'm doing um may not show up in the justice book or maybe it will, but um, that's the sort of thing where these connections, um, you know, people send me stuff or journalists ask me to talk about something and then they say, well, I just talked to so-and-so and I track down so-and-so and see what they have to say. So not so much, um, you know, standing on standing outside the hotel that the ISC are at with placards, which I've also done, but, um, you know, doing it a bit more remotely, but just as much energy. <laughs> yeah. And my, my last question is really to ask you something rather, again, rather dull and probably something journalists have put to you in the past, a reporter's question, which is what does Helen Jefferson Lenski want? Does she want no more Olympics at all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Simple. Simple. I, I said that in 2000. I said um, I'm calling for an end to the Olympics and I'm calling on people who love sport and value justice to uh, put their energy into other uh, sporting events and that have don't have the baggage of the Olympics and don't do the same kind of damage to host cities and so on. So I hate to be seen as not loving sport, but I... I but actually... <laughs> Well, I, I do think that's a very important remark to make because I do not see how, quite apart from all the corruption, the male domination, the heterosexism and the racism of both the World Cup of Men's Football and the Olympics, both summer and winter, on a purely environmental level, I do not see how it can be justified, how these things can be justified. yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Although one would have to make some sort of remark about the National Hockey League and especially Major League Baseball and 
<laughs> people flying across the United States willy-nilly for months at a time every year. There are problems there too. But there might be ways of fixing that. I can't really see a way of fixing the environmental problems caused by both the construction of stadia, yeah. the travel and the media electronics associated with those world events. And it's not just the athletes, of course, it's also the spectators and the audiences. So I think your point is well made, and I just wanted to get you to say it, even though you've said it elsewhere, but to say it to <laughs> our listeners. Yeah, so, happy to say it. So, Prof. Helen, wanted to throw things to you just to give you the chance to add to anything we've discussed or perhaps bring in something that we haven't looked at. Oh, I think uh, this has been very comprehensive. Um, I know that there are probably aspects that we haven't dealt with, um, but, uh, no, I'm I'm happy with the range of topics that you've raised and uh, how we've explored a whole lot of interesting controversial issues and uh yeah i look forward to talking again when my new book comes out which won't be for probably 18 months from now but that's got to be another podcast episode for sure that will be wonderful so thank you so much professor helen jefferson lansky it was just a delight i really appreciated it thank you i've enjoyed it too